Thank you, Diana, for reading that. Uh, as she mentioned, that was from the, uh, the message version, and, uh, and I like uh, just the words used there. It really captures the thought of where we're going today. Uh, we will be focusing uh, out of the NIV version, and so if you uh, have a copy of that, you can kind of see uh, the, the correlations between there. And so thank you, Diana, for that. Uh, let's go, have, go ahead and have a word of prayer. Our God, thank you so much for this morning. Um, God, we are grateful uh, for the fact that we're able to join together uh, in worship um, to just humbly um, just bow our hearts, ourselves before you, acknowledging that you're the one true king, uh, the one true God. Um, God, we, we want to reflect that. We want that to be active and alive in our lives. The fact that we love you, the fact that we have a relationship with you, God, people need to know it. Uh, God, we desperately want to feel it. And so, God, I pray today as we open up this new series, God, that you would be strong for us, that you would speak to us through your word that you would convict where it's needed, that you would encourage where it's needed. God, that you would uh, break us out of um, any um, level of dormancy that we may be in. God, may, be, may we be filled with the Spirit, um, and may we live vibrantly for you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, uh, hold your place there in Galatians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today as we start our new series. Um, we're going to be going through the fruits of the Spirit, and this is probably not your first fruits of the Spirit series that you've done, I suppose. Um, but as Brett mentioned last week, um, we kind of understand this to be the heartbeat of the heartbeat. Um, as we've been making our way through the heartbeat series, and uh, um, what we're going to unravel in this series... Uh, this mini-series, I guess you could say, of the Fruits of the Spirit is, is much of the reasons why Brett felt the need uh, and had this direction for this body to go into this series that we've called Heartbeat. And so we're going to pull some of those out for you today. Um, <clears throat> our plan is simple. Uh, we're going to try to lay down some framework. If we're going to spend six weeks on the Fruit of the Spirit, we should probably understand a few things. First of all, the Spirit. Second of all, what fruit is right? <clears throat> and so we're going to define these and also uh, take a, a, a brief look at the very first fruit that's mentioned uh, in Galatians chapter 5, which is love, right? Um, above all things, just to tip my hand, um, above all things, love is to mark us as the body of Christ more than anything else. This is to be the most significant marker of a Christian life, uh, is the way that we love, the way that we love each other, the way that we love our families, our church, the way that we love this world. This is to be the greatest uh, characteristic of us as a body of Jesus Christ. Okay, it's, it's most important. And so uh, at whatever level of time that we commit to that this morning, uh, please make no mistake, if it feels minor, um, it's actually quite major, uh, this idea of, of being filled with Christ-like love. Okay. So uh, it is spring. I'm not much of a plant person. Uh, my wife knows this. I married a plant person. She's much better at it than I am. Um, and so um, I, I don't know a whole lot about what I'm about to talk about, okay, just to give you that disclaimer. Uh, but one thing I have noticed, uh, it is spring. Everything's coming to life again, uh, that all of these plants, all of these trees that look dead, right? Did they not look dead for about six months of this year, it felt like, for this whole winter? Uh, they look dead, and now all of a sudden they're coming back to life right? Um, I guess they're called perennials, right? They, they go into this weird state of what looks like death, and then they come out again in the spring. Turns out they were still alive. It's kind of bizarre to me. Let me ask you this question, by the way. If you're a plant person, what's the point in buying annual plants if you can buy perennial plants? Does that make sense? 
What's the point in buying an annual plant that's just going to die and not come back versus a perennial plant where it's going to die and then come back? It seems to be just kind of fiscally, um, you know, just smart to just go with the perennials. I don't know. Maybe some of them are just better looking for the year. It's just worth that cost. But it's a mystery to me. But here's what I know about perennials. They do come back. They do come back, right? They look like death for a while, but they come back. Um, and, and so uh, we, what we see, what we experience, you know, the trees falling and everything just kind of looking grim, what we experience on the outside, it looks like death. But did you know that there's still life there? Which is bizarre, right? That, that deep down, uh, there's still life in that plant. And so when springtime rolls around, when the conditions are right, it begins to bloom again. And so what happens is that these plants don't actually just die for a while and then come back to life. What happens is there's still life there at the bottom of it, right? There's still life, but it's just in this state of dormancy, right? It goes dormant for a while, and you can kind of see where I'm going with this as we're about to unravel a study on the fruits of the Spirit. Here's what dormancy means. It means that the plant or the tree, it, it conserves all of its energy, all of its nutrients, simply to survive the conditions, Right? If it's cold, if there's not much water, it's in survival mode. It's only concerned with staying alive. It's only relying on itself to make it through. There's life there, but it looks completely dead. It looks completely dead, right? Dormant Christianity is where we're going. Have you ever, have you ever felt that way? Do you feel dormant as a believer? Do you feel like you're just in survival mode? Maybe you claim Christ, but the, the mission of your life, you can, you, you, you can honestly say it's been overruled by something else. It's no longer the mission of Christ. Maybe we talk the Christian game. We kind of live it up. We go to church on Sundays. But, but if you're honest, you would acknowledge that maybe the fire, the excitement that you once felt in Christ, it's, it's kind of been put out. Maybe you're here and you're just in a spiritual rut. You feel like you kind of plateaued in your faith. Have you ever felt that way? Right? Nothing seems to be working to nudge you out of it. Or maybe you're here and, and you claim Christ strongly, but you've kind of embraced your inclinations towards anger and grumpiness and stress and ang anger as just, that's kind of who I am. You've gotten to that place where you've just accepted it and embraced it. You've quit working on it. You've quit trying to fight against it. You feel defeated in a particular battle against sin. Or maybe you just claim Christ circumstantially. When the conditions are right, that's when you'll show your fruit. But outside of that, you, you just look dead. Maybe you're here and you're truly saved in Jesus Christ. This happens. You, you're truly saved. You had a genuine experience with Jesus. But deep down, there is life. But you feel more dead than alive. You seem more dead than alive. This happens to me. We're vulnerable to it. I'm vulnerable to it. I can tell you firsthand. I know for a fact I'm vulnerable to it. It gets in the way of my life many times. And this whole Heartbeat series has been devoted to guarding against this one specific thing. So today we're going to unravel uh, Galatians chapter 5. And Galatians chapter 5, in a way, addresses this very thing head on, specifically. And what we're going to discover is that there's this waging, uh, raging war within us. Right, Our flesh uh, are against uh, the spirit of God alive within us. Right? And, and it's usually that war uh, and, and our decisions that, that impact it that will determine whether or not we are, find ourselves in a dormant state of Christianity. So in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul, he's, he's addressing an issue. 
Uh, Steve Miller taught on Galatians uh, a few months back on Wednesday nights, and it was just brilliant stuff. And so I'm going to steal some of his stuff. Right? We kind of learned that there were people among the church who were, who were preaching a different gospel than the one that we received from Jesus. Right? These guys who, who were part of this church, they were preaching a gospel that said that you had to be saved by Jesus, but also by your works. It was a combination of both. You had to believe in Jesus, but also you had to do the right things, and then you could be saved. And this is contrary to the gospel we know and love that says it's by faith through grace alone that you can be saved, right? Not anything that you can do. There's nothing that you can do. You cannot earn it. And yet there were people in the Galatian church that were preaching a different gospel. And so it's out of the Apostle Paul's defense of this that we get Galatians chapter 5. And you can pretty much sum it up in one verse, and it's the first verse of the chapter that simply says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom from what? Your, sinf- your sinful impulses, your flesh, your desires, your habits, all of these things in our lives that are sinful, your pride, your anxiety, your worry, your anger, your jealousy, all of these things that can be marked by just the sinful desires of your flesh. There's actually freedom in Jesus Christ from these things. And through the book of Galatians, we see uh, freedom from your flesh. This idea of being free from your flesh is broken down in, in two ways, according to Paul in the book of Galatians. First, it's this. It's freedom from the thought that you could earn anything by your flesh. That's a freeing thought, isn't it? Imagine how exhausting it must be to wake up every day and not know if you're in God's good graces. Every day, not knowing if you were to die that day where you would end up for eternity. Imagine if you had to earn your salvation, if you had to work for it, as if we had anything to offer. What an exhausting way to live. Martin Luther had this realization back in the day whenever he went to confession in his Catholic days. He went to confession uh, and he confessed all of his sins to, to his priest. And as he was walking out, he realized that he needed to turn and go right back in because he had already sinned in the small amount of time. And he realized that if he was really serious about, about this, that he would have to go to confessional all the time because he's a broken, sinful person. And that's when he just had this epiphany. Right? In Ephesians 2, um, this chapter that we often attribute to him, that you have been saved by, by faith through grace alone. Right? We attribute that verse many times to, to the Reformation, this epiphany that God gave Martin Luther because he realized he was sinful. He could not confess enough to a human being to get out of it. What a terrible way to live. So freedom from the flesh means freedom from the thought that you could earn anything by your flesh. But it also means this. It means simply it's freedom from the acts of the flesh, sin, sinful habits, sinful behaviors. Doesn't mean that you can be saved permanently, at least until you are in heaven, that you will actually be free of of this sinful body that, that that you have. But it does mean that whatever you're going through right now, if it's a habit or if it's a sinful tendency, whatever it is that's going on, that he can give you victory right now in that thing. You'll probably have more things to have victory in in the future. Different things will come with different stages of life. It's it's part of who we are as just kind of a sinful people. But he can give you victory in it. And it's kind of a promise in his scripture. This is freedom from the flesh. Freedom from the flesh. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says this. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. 
Now there's a wonderful, hopeful thing in here that we, we, we have to acknowledge is that God in his grace saw our need. He saw our tendency, right? He saw our weakness and so he gave us a gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of this, of this person of the Holy Trinity alive within you to help you combat the tendencies of your flesh. He lives in you. He's in direct contention with the flesh. He's waging war against sin and flesh in your life, right? It's a constant battle, and it's weighed and measured based upon your decisions to either choose freedom or to choose flesh, to choose the Spirit's lead in your life if he is there, or to choose your own way, to choose sin. So, who is he? Who is this Spirit? Right? This Holy Spirit that's alive in you. Well, he is the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's the third part of the triune God. And he's alive within you. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, this is Jesus when he's talking to his disciples and he's uh, preparing for them for the time when he's going to actually leave them, right? He's going to die, he's going com- to be on the earth for a little while after he's resurrected, then he's going to ascend into heaven, and then he's going to be gone, right? He's not going to be with them in the flesh anymore, and so he says this, John 14, 16 and 17, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. So the Holy Spirit, just based on this passage, and there's so much about the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. Just based on this small passage, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth, right? Truth, this, this idea that's just kind of fleeting and it's diluted these days, right? People, people come up with their own definitions of truth. Well, if you want to know true truth, well, the spirit of truth will give that to you. The spirit of truth. He lives in you. If you are here and you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you've been saved by his blood, then the Bible says that the spirit is, is his spirit gifted to you to help sustain you and, and to, to, to seal you to the day of redemption to where you are, until you are with Jesus face to face, right? Jesus is not in the flesh right here in front of us, and yet he gave us his church, he gave us his spirit to help cover the gap. Jesus actually said in John 16, it's better that I go so that he can come, right? This is a wonderful gift. He's our advocate, our helper, our counselor, our guide. He fills so many gaps, right, because we are just people. But, but the spirit of God alive within us, he, he does so much for us. He intercedes for us in various ways. The Bible says he convicts and leads to righteousness, that he's sent from God in the name of Jesus, that he's the Holy Spirit of truth, and he's the, the spirit of the person of truth, right? You think about John 1, Jesus came, and he was full of grace and truth. And so the spirit of truth, he's the spirit of the person of truth. And the Bible says that he, he seals us to the day of redemption until we reach heaven. And until then, Galatians 5 says that the Holy Spirit is our only fighting chance against sin, against flesh, for living in freedom, so that the Holy Spirit would Fill us with spiritual fruit, right? The Holy Spirit unhindered is what brings a Christian out of dormancy. A Holy Spirit unhindered is what allows us to grow in Jesus Christ, to grow more like Jesus Christ, and to accomplish the mission of Jesus Christ. And you think, well, that's pretty awesome. What a big deal that is. What a great gift. What gets in the way of that? How do Christians still experience dormancy? 
Well, what gets in the way is pretty simple. It's you and it's me. We get in the way, don't we? We get in the way, and the Bible gives us implications of this, that we can actually hinder the work of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19 simply says this, the Apostle Paul, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, the Bible says this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So by the things we say, by the decisions we make, when we choose sin over, over freedom, when we choose anger and slander and malice, when we choose to be distracted by the way we live, simply put, if we choose sin, we grieve and quench the spirit of God within us. Not because he's not powerful, but because we're not willing. Right? Please know that. Not because he's not powerful, but because we're not willing. And I pray that if you're here today, that you would, you would make an honest assessment of, of yourself and really ask yourself one question. Are my decisions and my lifestyle, are they the reasons the Spirit of God feels so quenched within me? Are they the reason? Are my decisions and my lifestyle, that, the, this way that I've been living, is that the reason that I've been in spiritual dormancy? Maybe I've spent a lot of time blaming everything else. I've blamed a bad uh, church experience or, or a Christian who hurt me or something. Like that. I've been blaming everything else in my own spiritual dormancy. Can we possibly admit this morning that maybe it's us? Maybe it's my decisions. Maybe it's my lifestyle that's actually put me in this state. I can't tell you how many times I've had interactions with believers who they come up and they talk, they, they talk about a spiritual rut that they've been in. They've been struggling lately. Uh, you know, they, they haven't been getting in the word, and it's just kind of the spiritual rut. You know, many of you probably can re resonate with that. And at the same time, uh, what they'll go on to talk about is, is how crazy life's been, right? It's just, it's just been hard because I haven't had time with this, and Got all these expectations out there, and just work's been stressful lately, and it's just, and, and, and I pray that hopefully today we can connect the dots. The spiritual rut is absolutely always connected to the craziness of life. And more times than not, the craziness of life is there because of the decisions we made, the commitments we've put ourselves in, right? The spiritual rut is absolutely connected to the craziness of life. Busy school seasons, heavy course loads, hectic schedules filled with sports and extracurriculars, long working hours, hobbies, side jobs, all of which can become oppressive to the person and the family. And it's almost always there because we chose it to be there. Let us connect the dots this morning. Let us understand that our spiritual run, our spiritual dormancy is absolutely connected with the choices that we make. And at worst... It hinders our, our usefulness for the advancement of the gospel, and we are stunted in our growth in Jesus Christ. And in case I've stepped on a lot of toes this morning, I want you to know that in preparation for this, the Lord absolutely broke mine. I give way to this all the time. I frequently find myself too distracted, too distracted. I find myself in these places of, of dormancy, right? But we have to guard against this. We have to unleash, unhinder the spirit. We must get out of our own way and let him work in our lives because this is how people come to know the Lord. This is how people become saved. This is how the gospel is advanced. This is how you become more and more and more like Jesus Christ. Right? These are transformations that happen in the spirit. 
we can't conjure these things ourselves. And so if we're serious about it, we'll be honest with where we're at in our own spiritual assessment of what's going on. We need to quit blaming things and understand that it's us that gets in the way. And then from there, we can progress. We can do a Fruits of the Spirit series, and it won't just be more information to you. It'll be something that could maybe spark life change, right? So, with all of that said, here's the hope. The Spirit of God is your hope. The Spirit of God, beginning today, can bust you out of dormancy, right? In the same way that a tree can come back to life and begin to bear fruit again after it looked like death for so long, the same thing can happen uh, to the human spirit, We can come out of that today. We do not have to resemble death anymore. We don't have to feel more dead than alive anymore because he has given us his spirit, right? So here's what fruit means. We're going to talk about the spirit, uh, fruit of the spirit, right? This idea of, 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 of the outflow of living in the spirit. Here's what it looks like, right? We're going to talk about that. First, let's understand what fruit is. First of all, it's evidence. It's evidence of life. Right? A tree that bears no fruit looks dead. A tree that bears bad fruit looks alive but in the negative. Right? And the point is to bear good fruit. Fruit that is helpful and good for for everyone around. To be healthy. To be nourished. Right? To bear good fruit. It's evidence of life. Jesus said people will know you by your fruit. He said he will know if you're a disciple of mine or or, or people will know that you are a false prophet by your fruit. Right? Your fruit gives evidence of what kind of life is within you. But real fruit is sourced by the vine. If you want good fruit, then you have to have a good source. Whatever's feeding it, its nutrients must be a good source. And we have the best source, John 15, 4. Jesus says, remain in me as also I remain in you. Excuse me. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So be sourced by the, by the vine. Right? Fruit means evidence of life. It means being sourced by Jesus Christ himself. And when we do this, when we embrace this, this is what happens. Our lives give glory to God by the fruit that we, we put on display. Our lives give glory. John 15, 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Who in here doesn't want to glorify God, by the way? Right? These things we need to take seriously. One way you can glorify God is by embracing, by, by um, um, pursuing these fruits of the spirit that he's laid out for us to, uh, laid out for us plainly, right? So we have at least a base context of spirit and fruit. Let's read Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 26. And we're going to look specifically at the very first fruit mentioned here in verse 22, that is love. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy. Peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So we have nine fruits there that, it's, that, are, that are mentioned specifically. They're mentioned specifically for a good reason, okay? And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to unpack each of them individually. Some weeks we'll do two at a time, right? We'll, 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 we'll get it all in there. 
but each one is worth its own emphasis, is it not? And I would never say that any of these fruits in particular are minor at any level. I think they're all major, but if there was one that was most major, if that makes sense, would be the fruit of love. As I said, it is the most significant marker of the people of Christ, or should be the thing that separates us most as the people of Christ, by the way that we love. Now, here's two reasons why I believe love is, is the most major of the fruits of the Spirit. First of, is this. It's foundational to all spiritual fruits and giftedness. Love is, is the base of all spiritual gifts and all spiritual fruits. Love is the base. In fact, none of these other ones are real or valid if love is not there. Right? 1 Corinthians 13, we've kind of made it a little more kitschy than it is, right? We use it in weddings, and it's this feel-good chapter about love and and what love looks like. And it's a good chapter, but we forget oftentimes that the Apostle Paul was pretty miffed when he wrote that. Because people weren't loving. People weren't worshiping how they should. They were misusing it, right? And that's why he starts the chapter by saying... Even if I have spiritual gifts so abundant that I could speak in the tongues of angels, but if I don't have love, then all it is is a clanging gong or or a clashing cymbal, right? Anybody want to hear a drum solo this morning? Walk back here and I can just start banging the cymbals. That's what a Christian looks like. That's what a Christian sounds like without love. You hear about those people? Right? They have all of the giftedness in the world, but they can't love their neighbor as themselves. It's obnoxious, clanging symbols is what it is. Love is the base of it all. Love is foundational to any giftedness and to any fruit. Right? It's interesting, by the way, that, that, that when it comes to spiritual gifts, especially kind of the sign gifts, that those aren't mentioned when it comes to the fruits of the Spirit. Right, fruits being the evidence of life, fruits being the evidence of of what's going on there, right? So don't let anyone convince you that that a spiritual gift alone uh, um, gives credence to your salvation. It's the way that you love by using that gift, okay? God is way more concerned with the character and attitude of a person. And if we focus on these things, if we focus on the fruits of the Spirit, then we might be surprised in the way he decides to gift us in his Spirit. Right? Secondly, the reason I believe love is the most major of the, of the, uh, of the fruits is this. The entire law is summed up by it. All of the law is summed up by it. Apostle, the Apostle Paul says in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, he gives way to this. He says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus extends this in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, when he says this. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Sorry, there's another guy who asked him that question. And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. When the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands, to love your God and to love people. Right? a pretty big deal. Love is foundational to all spiritual giftedness, to all spiritual fruit. So here's the big question, and it's one that we're going to kind of discipline ourselves about uh, going through this series. What's the difference between worldly love and spiritual love? I know a lot of uh, unbelievers, a lot of people who do not claim Christ or care to, who seem to be marked by love. 
They're passionate for people. They care about social justice. Uh, they, they, they love people, right? They're, they're good to their families. They're good to their friends. What's the difference between that guy who has no love for Jesus Christ and those who, who have a spiritual love, who are enabled to love at this level uh, by the Spirit of God? What's the difference? Right? One of the fruits of the Spirit is goodness. What's the difference between worldly goodness and spiritual goodness? How is there a difference there? These are questions that we're going to unpack. And today, uh, just real briefly, I'm going to give you four reasons, four differences between spiritual love and worldly love. This is not a comprehensive list. This is just a few for you to, for you to take home and, and to consider for yourself. And the first is this. There should be a different level of character. Character. When we start talking about the Spirit of Christ alive in you, then we must understand that the more we grow in the fruit of the Spirit, the more we take on the character and attitude of Jesus Christ, right? After all, these are his characteristics. These are his character attributes that are listed for us in the fruits of the Spirit. And the more we live in those, the more we resemble Jesus Christ. It's pretty awesome, right, to think that the fruits of the Spirit are are the character of Christ that we can actually grow in as we resemble him, as we begin to look more and more like him, right? The the Bible word for this is sanctification. From the point of your salvation to the point of your death, you are to look more and more and more and more and more like Jesus Christ until you're with him and and you resemble him perfectly, right? And so uh, to have the spiritual fruit of love means to love like Christ loved, Right? And, uh, and when we're talking about character, we're thinking more on like day-to-day levels. How Jesus loved perfectly, if you read through the Gospels. He never gave way to anger unless it was totally necessary and righteous. He healed and he cared and he showed compassion and he mourned with those who were mourning. And at the same time, he embraced tough love towards the Pharisees, right? It was the only way that they were ever going to have a chance with the Gospel. And so he took a different approach with them and at the same time showed his love to all the people uh, looking on the outside, Right In the way that he even dealt with the Pharisees. He loved. He showed grace to the woman caught in adultery. Think about the case with the woman at the well. The way he loved her. He forgave his executioners as he was dying on the cross. We could go on and on and on about the character of love that Jesus put on display. And these are the things we are to pursue. Christians are to have a character of love. We are to be marked by this. Far too often Christians hold grudges longer than they should. They notice all the things wrong before they notice anything right. They're offended by everyone and they're going to let you know about it. They're hard to please, hard to earn any respect from them. Let me ask you, is this the image that you want for the people, uh, the image of the people of Christ? Is this the image we are to put out there? A bunch of hard-nosed skeptics and critics who are quicker to judge than to forgive and who are easily offended by insignificant things? Sadly, this is the image that many people have of the church, right? Sounds like there was a love issue there. And the Apostle Paul would probably say that's just kind of an obnoxious clanging of symbols when we do that. So the first is character. The second is this, covenant. Covenantal love. It's kind of a unique word, but I love it in regards to love, right? Too often we think of love uh, in the same way that a a three-year-old loves a bunny, I love things because they're cute and cuddly. They exist to make me happy. And as soon as I'm annoyed by them, I can cage them and move on. Right? And sadly, that's kind of how we treat marriage sometimes. Right? The love between a man and a woman. I love them for what they can provide for me, for how they look, and what they can offer. And if they ever fall short, I can always remarry. 
And we hear this phrase more and more, right? Um, I just fell out of love. I just don't love him or her anymore. We see it. It's a frequent statement these days. And really what that means is I don't want to love him or her anymore. We have this mindset of love that is just this contractual thing based on circumstances. We don't realize that it actually truly is a verb of obedience. And it takes a lot of work to fulfill covenantal love. God had covenantal love with his people. Remember? All the way back through Abraham. He made a covenant to his people. And guess what? His people disobeyed him and worshipped other gods all the time. And yet, the covenant of love stands. Does it not? And we receive the same covenant of love through the blood of Jesus Christ. That we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. And Romans 8 tells us that that, that love that we receive there, that nothing can take that away. Nothing. Right? Your dormancy, your spiritual rut, the sinful decision that you made, all the mistakes that we made, even after we, we, we have believed in Jesus Christ, that covenant stands. He's not going to back out because it's not a contract. It's a covenant. It's binding. Right? We are to have the same love in our marriages, with our kids, with our church. Even to the world, we are to make a covenant of love to the world, right? Jesus' way of talking about a covenant of love to the world is simplified in the Great Commission. To go and to share the gospel to, to all nations and make disciples of people, right? This is the way we love the world. And we don't do it just when it's easy or just when it's hard. We don't do it when just the conditions are right. This is a lifestyle. This is a commitment because it's a covenant. Do we understand that? Covenant. Thirdly, this idea of submission. Submission, and there's two words within this that we need to know. First is this, motive. Motive. See, the, uh, this, is, this one's really good because it pulls out the motives of your acts of love. One of the greatest differences between worldly acts of love and spiritual love is the motive by which it's done. I remember a long time ago we, uh, when Hurricane Katrina hit and this church sent many teams over to um, Alabama uh, to, to just kind of renovate houses and to restore houses after the flood. And I remember one time we were on one side of the street redoing these people's houses and it was just awful. They had a freezer filled with like raw meats that got caught in the flood and their garage smelled so bad and we went there and cleaned it up and did drywall and all that stuff. And on the other side there was a group from somewhere else doing the same exact stuff. Doing the same exact stuff, but the most significant difference is that even though both of the houses looked way better by the time both groups were done, on our side, I still remember vividly seeing three or four of our guys just embrace a family, pray for them, share the gospel with them, right? Ten minutes on this side made all the difference because in that was motive, in that was the hope of life, not just a new house, right? What good is it to live 50 more years and still have to end up in hell anyways, Right? What good is it to offer uh, water to a, a, a thirsty nation if you don't also offer the water of life? What good is it to heal starvation just so people can live longer but have not the hope of the bread of life that can sustain them forever? This is the difference. It's the motive. Secondly, within this idea of submission is obedience. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Both of these, our motive and our obedience, they come from a submissive heart towards the Lord. We cannot achieve these if we do not submit ourselves to him. 
your expression of love to God is done in obedience to his son and his word. Right? And lastly is this difference between worldly love and spiritual love. Spiritual love embraces sacrifice. In this world of arousal addiction and all of these things, how we love just based on what we can get and what, what they can offer us, spiritual love is marked by sacrifice. It's about what you can give, what, you, what it can gladly cost you to enhance the relationship, to, 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 to make them better. And Jesus said, there's no greater love than this to lay down your life for another. Jesus did this, by the way, brutally laid down his life so that we may be saved. And we could go on and on about stories of people who have loved to the extent of they've lost their family, they've lost their careers, they've been displaced from their countries because they were ready for the cost that it was going to take to love, to love as Jesus loved. I just wonder, is loving God worth this kind of sacrifice for us? Is it worth this kind of cost? In what way are you, in what way am I hindering the love of Christ being poured out in our lives? Are we too busy? Are we too distracted? Are we too mentally consumed, too physically exhausted? I pray that today in this series, the Lord would just lift us out of dormancy over the next few weeks. That we would experience a revived spirit within us. That we would love as Jesus loved, whatever the cost. Let's pray. Our God, thank you so much for your word. God, I pray that you would lift us out of dormancy this morning. For anyone here who has been struggling in their faith, they've been caught up in other things. Um, they've, uh, they've accepted uh, to just not resign their will to yours, but they've decided to live in their own for a while. God, whatever the case may be, God, would you bust us out of dormancy. For those in here who truly have the gift of the Spirit in their lives, would you remove everything that is hindering the Spirit working vibrantly through us. God, even as a church, would you fill this place with your Spirit, fill it with people, uh, fill it with a Spirit unhindered. God, would you just do a wonderful work uh, this morning uh, in this way, and would this carry out, God, into, the, into this year as we consider you and press into uh, another uh, time, season, spring of ministry, God. And God, would commit all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, just take a few moments and consider uh, what we've heard from the word this morning. Just ask yourself these questions. Commit them to prayer. Take a conscious moment uh, to consider this. And we'll join in worship again.